from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this Our Week for Culture and Media, two experts examine a new report claiming that Russia used social media to suppress the votes of African Americans in the 2016 presidential election. I would call it really journalistic irresponsibility and political bias, very serious political bias, that really distorts the coverage of anything that has to do with the the question of Russian efforts and what should be done about it. And the facts surrounding Michael Flynn, former National Security Advisor for the Trump administration, get to the heart of what is real and fake in the so-called Russiagate investigation. In any case, Mr. Flynn has a real problem because on the one hand, he's cooperating with the special counsel, Mr. Mueller, But on the other hand, not being an affluent man, he has to raise funds for his defense and for his future livelihood from the pro-Trump base. And I'm not sure if he'll be able to successfully walk that tightrope. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And this is On the Ground's only day, only hour to raise money to support WPFW during the station's year-end membership drive. This drive is right in time for you to secure as large of a tax write-off that you can. (laughs) Call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or pledge online at wpfwfm.org. Click on the red Donate Now button and make sure to select on the ground from the drop-down menu. By making a tax-deductible donation, fewer of your tax dollars are funneled into the war machine. How about that? We don't take money from the arms dealers, fossil fuel companies, the health lobby, the hell lobby, no corporate money, no commercials. So you are a big backer. If you are an investor in social justice, if you are doing your year-end giving, Please help On the Ground reach our goal during this hour to keep WPFW on the air, your Pacifica listener-sponsored station in the nation's capital. Call 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739, or pledge online at wpfwfm.org, 202-588-9739. Call early so I can thank you on the air. Now, the Clean Energy D.C. Act was passed unanimously by the D.C. Council on Tuesday, December 18th. The new bill, which must be signed by the office of the mayor, means that the District of Columbia will be powered by 100 percent renewable energy by 2032. This puts D.C. on the fastest timeline to 100 percent renewable electricity among states in the country. Though a broad coalition of environmental, labor, and other social justice organizations secured most of their goals with the law, they say they were stymied in their effort to pass the strongest clean energy bill, first by corporate-friendly amendments by Pepco Exelon lobbyists, introduced by Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie, second by procedural decisions by Council Chair Phil Mendelson. And finally, by Mayor Bowser's selection of an Exelon hand-picked candidate to sit on the district's powerful Public Service Commission, and this selection in defiance of her own nomination committee. After the vote, Camila Thorndike, D.C. campaign director for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, told me 
that members of the D.C. Climate Coalition will continue to work to ensure that the act is put into action, starting with a newly mandated working group. Councilmember Che was able to lessen the severity of the amendments. The overall nature of what Pepco Exelon was trying to do was monopolize the energy efficiency markets in D.C. In the 90s, D.C. deregulated its energy landscape and created, a few years later, the Sustainable Energy Utility, or SEU, which is a quasi-independent agency mandated to reduce energy consumption in, in the district by 1% each year and, furthermore, create local jobs and make sure that they're serving low-income residents. And what these amendments were modified to is the creation of a working group, including the SEU and uh, agencies and you know, interested public stakeholders to hash out proposals to put forward to the PSC together. So that introduces or reintroduces some transparency and opportunity for expertise and accountability into the process, and we really celebrate that. This week, the D.C. Council also approved controversial legislation to build a new hospital in southeast D.C. According to the Washington Post account, the bill waives the normal review process, the certificate of need process for new hospitals and includes amendments that ensure Howard University College of Medicine is guaranteed an academic affiliation with one or more regional hospitals, including the new Southeast facility. The bill also reduces the expansion at the Foggy Bottom site from 270 beds to 200, and it softens the requirements for the hiring of current UMC workers at the replacement hospital, while still requiring that the city and GW Hospital take steps to employ at least some unionized employees, the Post said. While D.C. is taking steps toward clean energy and lessening pollution, a proposal by Maryland Governor Larry Hogan for new roads in that state could be moving in the opposite direction. Pete Tucker has more. In Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan is attempting to implement a $9 billion plan to build 100 miles of toll lanes on the state's traffic-choked highways surrounding D.C., Rather than use public financing, Hogan is turning to the private markets to finance, build, and operate the project. Elsewhere, these so-called public-private partnerships have led to problems, including next door in Virginia, where the state's high-priced toll lanes have been nicknamed Lexus lanes. But there's a further problem with building more lanes. They only lure more drivers to the road, and traffic quickly rebounds while the public purse is drained and pollution increases. At least, that's what studies say. Governor Hogan has a different take. At the Board of Public Works hearing on Wednesday, Hogan said his highway expansion will be good for the environment because it will allow cars to go faster. And what's more, anyone who disagrees is a climate denier. Vehicles traveling at greater speeds do produce lower carbon emissions. Challenging that is like being a a climate change denier. But climate issues are not the only area where Governor Hogan may be a step or two behind. By turning to private markets to finance his project, Hogan may be strapping Maryland with years-long debt. That's what Jeremy Moeller of In the Public Interest told me when I sat down with him. First of all, public-private partnerships, the way that Hogan is planning to finance this $9 billion deal, is a risky and dangerous path to go for governments, um, particularly in the United States. Not many of these deals have been made historically 
here in the U.S. Um, and that is particular. That is be- precisely because the cost of borrowing money for local and state governments using what are called municipal bonds uh, is cheap. It's cheap money, um, and this is because it's subsidized by the federal government. Now, a public-private partnership is private financing. It's an alternative route to borrowing money, and it's going to the private markets directly, like a Wall Street bank or a multinational uh, financial firm, and borrowing it at a much higher interest rate. And this allows someone like Hogan to get around this traditional method of borrowing and say that we're not increasing taxes. We're just going to go directly and borrow the money, and we'll pay it back, in this case, with tolls. Uh, It's you know, orders of magnitude higher in terms of the interest rate. So first of all, it's just much more expensive. So in order to justify taking out a loan at that interest rate uh, to Maryland residents, you know, you really need to have, there's, the, the, the standards are high. The, the bar is high to justify that. That was Jeremy Moeller of In the Public Interest. For On the Ground, I'm Pete Tucker. Other national news coming from D.C. this week is all about justice and incarceration. On Tuesday, the Senate approved a bipartisan bill, the First Step Act, that rolls back sentences for federal prisoners, including mandatory life sentences for third-time offenders, as well as mandatory sentences for nonviolent drug users. The act also ends sentencing disparities for convictions of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, which have led to deep racial disparities in prison terms. The bill only affects federal prisoners who make up less than 10% of the more than 2 million U.S. prisoners. And activists in D.C. and around the country are signing petitions and joining calling campaigns to urge Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam to grant clemency to Centoya Brown, who was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison in 2004 for killing a man who had solicited her for sex when she was just 16 years old. Brown said she was forced into prostitution by her boyfriend and that she feared the victim, 43-year-old Johnny Mitchell Allen, was going to kill her. And finally, activists in D.C. are joining in the national outrage and sorrow at the death of 7-year-old Jacqueline Kyle McKean while in custody of U.S. Customs and Border Agents after not being given food or water by the agency in New Mexico. Several organizations staged a justice for Jacqueline rally on Monday at the entrance to the Northwest D.C. Office of Customs and Border Protection. Maha Halal, an activist with the Justice for Muslims Collective, is one of those who spoke. We will continue to come here. We will continue to put the focus and spotlight on U.S. state violence domestically and abroad for as long as it takes. So there's justice for Jacqueline and every other individual who has to come More voices from the Justice for Jacqueline rally later in the show. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn, stay with us. Anybody 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Two new reports say that Russia especially targeted African Americans during the 2016 presidential election with social media posts on Facebook and Instagram designed to dissuade black voters from voting for Hillary Clinton or from voting at all. Here to start unpacking these reports is our geopolitical analyst, the prolific author, historian, and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, these two reports, one produced by New Knowledge, a cybersecurity company based in Austin, Texas, and the other by an outfit called the Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford University, made the news this week. And so after analyzing the reports and coverage, what's your take on all this? Well, the implication is that the, the social media, media alleged offensive drove down the black vote and decreased turnout. That was the implication of the statement issued by the Congressional Black Caucus, although Chris Matthews of MSNBC, no genius to put it mildly when it comes to assessing politics, pointed out that it was inevitable that with Barack Obama not on the ticket in 2016, and Hillary Clinton on the ticket, she of the scurrilous allegation that black youth were somehow super predators, that black turnout would decrease. In any case, Nate Silver, the electoral guru, points out that the so-called social media offensive by Russian operatives amounted to about 0.1% of all posts that have been posted on these two platforms. I think that the larger story is that, once again, the U.S. ruling elite is looking to so-called outside agitators to explain black politics. Recall that in the bad old days of Jim Crow in Dixie, so-called outside agitators were always blamed for stirring up the Negroes, who otherwise would be somnolent and not awake to protest against Jim Crow. And of course, this touches on a much deeper fear in the U.S. ruling elite, which is that black Americans are not politically reliable, that they are not necessarily prone to support a slaveholding republic or a Jim Crow republic or a state like the United States that allows police to run rampant and roughshod in their communities. I think that One of the lessons should be that if the United States is that concerned about foreign governments or foreign entities interfering in U.S. politics, well, they should do something to rid this nation of racism and white supremacy, which will then help to eradicate any kind of advantage that these foreign entities have when it comes to making purported appeals to the black community. And keep in mind, that Donald J. Trump has not only uh, pointed to foreign entities, he's pointed to China in his speech at the United Nations as being involved in interfering in U.S. elections. I think it's also fair to say that this headline that appeared in the New York Times in particular, and I have to say, this is one of the few times when the New York Times carried a front-page headline with the lead story carrying the words African-American, and, of course, the story supposedly being about voter suppression and not voter suppression 
by U.S. nationals, but voter suppression by purported foreign nationals. But it was also of a piece with a typical misreading of the 2016 election, uh, which not only involves misreading the black vote, but also involves misreading the non-black vote as well. It's interesting that you mentioned the Jim Crow and the outside agitators, because I think that a lot of us react to this story by saying that, you know, this seems to fall into the same category of thinking that black people need Russians to point out our racial oppression to us in order for us to be aware of it. And there's a kind of a meme kind of circulating among a kind of progressive circles talking about how all of these reports are saying that this supposed interference is designed to quote unquote foment dissent by creating divisions. And that's another phrase that that's being used in these types of reports that pointing out the, the problem is the creating the division as opposed to the problem itself. Well, that underscores and underlines what I was trying to suggest, which is that if these elite forces are sincerely concerned about purported foreign interference in U.S. politics, they should work overtime to erode the basis of white supremacy, which helps to stir up black discontent in the first place. That, it seems to me, is a more fruitful path to pursue, and of course, that's probably the path they will choose not to pursue. Well, I have to mention also that this story also dovetails with recent stories we've covered about black activists, progressive activists on the people on the left having their Facebook pages, their pages on Twitter. Recently, I had a discussion with a young social media user about Tumblr, which I don't know that much about in terms of pages being taken down, real people, real African-American people being referred to as bots or being labeled as bots, Russian bots, <laughs> when they are trying to organize demonstrations. And most recently, when they were trying to organize the counter demonstration to the Unite the Right neo-Nazi march in front of the White House. And the local activists here in D.C. had their page taken down. The coalition of activists had their organizing page taken down, claiming that it was a, a Russian bot. And it destroyed all the initial organizing they had done to counter this march by a rally by neo-Nazis, which turned out to be nothing, which turned out to be, you know, fizzled down to less than a dozen people. But it was very important in in terms of, of destroying their organizing. So it made a really big impact on people and really changed people's view of these alleged reports and these pieces of research that are making these types of statements in terms of, you know, really how true they are and how thorough the research is because people are being referred to as bots when they're just human beings doing progressive activism. I wish that the liberal black leadership would listen to what you just said. I think that they might then seek to revise and amend the statements they've made. I've already made reference to the Congressional Black Caucus statement which seem to accept the predicates of these uh, reports that we're discussing. Likewise, for the statement by the NAACP, and likewise, I'm afraid to say, 
by the op-ed in Wednesday's Washington Post by Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, I wish that they were more concerned about, for example, the hiring practices of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube, and as well, more concerned about the censorship that you just articulated that's disproportionately impacting black activists. Yes, and this narrative makes no difference between telling the truth, basically, and trying to get truth out about real issues of concern to people, just because those real issues may be in conflict with the the narrative that is being pushed by the mainstream media and the ruling elite. Other commentators are pointing out that in some ways, if you accept the predicate of these reports, you may come to the conclusion that these alleged Russian media posters were appealing to an underserved community that was hungry and thirsty to see reports and memes about police terror, that they were not getting that from the mainstream media, needless to say, and that, therefore, that vacuum supposedly was then being filled. So once again, if these folks in the U.S. ruling class are sincerely interested about blocking alleged foreign interference in U.S. politics, perhaps they may want to focus more sincerely and more graphically on the issues of moment to the black community, not least of which is police terror. Well, speaking of narratives in the mainstream media, this week here in D.C., there was a media frenzy over the non-sentencing of Michael Flynn, former national security advisor for the Trump administration. And looking at all the coverage or listening to it or reading some of it. I really think that this whole episode this week kind of gets to the heart of what's real and fake in the so-called Russiagate investigation. And after observing, you know, from where you are, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I was struck by the fact that the judge in the case, Emmett Sullivan, is an African-American. I was struck by the fact that in the sentencing of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who, of course, is at the heart of the scandal that very well may bring down the 45th U.S. president, that Judge Sullivan suggested that he had read all these documents, most of which had been redacted, that is to say censored, and please excuse him if he were to blurt out something inadvertently that he was not supposed to. And then, of course, he blurted out, that Mr. Flynn might be guilty of treason, which sent a murmur through the courtroom. But I think there's a larger story with regard to Mr. Flynn. Keep in mind that of all the things that he's been accused of, perhaps the most serious was reported by the Wall Street Journal some months ago. That is to say that he was involved in an alleged plot to kidnap a Turkish opposition leader, Fatula Gulen, who now resides in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, and return him to Ankara, where he is the sworn enemy of President Erdogan of Turkey. Uh, This was quite remarkable, since (laughs) kidnapping is a felony and a crime. But then this ties into another story, which is breaking as we speak, which is that uh, Mr. Trump supposedly will be pulling U.S. troops out of Syria, where they were not invited, and whose presence there is questionable, 
This is causing outrage amongst the Hawks, including the Hawks on CNN, who consider themselves to be stalwart opponents of Mr. Trump. That is to say, they want those troops to stay there. And what's interesting is that this may also be part of this larger story of Mr. Flynn working out some sort of an agreement with Ankara, President Erdogan, and then perhaps Mr. Trump is in on this agreement as well. And, of course, it's also been suggested that Mr. Trump will be seeking to extradite uh, Mr. Gulen, the Turkish opposition leader, back to Turkey, where his fate will be uncertain at best. In any case, Mr. Flynn has a real problem, because on the one hand, he's cooperating with the special counsel, Mr. Mueller, but on the other hand, not being an affluent man, he has to raise funds for his defense and for his future livelihood from the pro-Trump base. And I'm not sure if he'll be able to successfully walk that tightrope. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Turkey because when Judge Sullivan mentioned treason and the charges against Flynn were being kind of articulated in the courthouse and he talked about being an agent for a foreign country or foreign entity, you know, really what he had failed to register for was as a foreign agent of Turkey, not for Russia. And I think that in most of the media coverage, they kind of ignore that point. And just a quick kind of reading of the the story. If you're just kind of glancing over the story and you see his name, Michael Flynn, and you hear the word treason, you hear working as a foreign agent for a country under the Russiagate narrative that we're being force fed constantly. Most people are thinking that he's pled guilty for being a foreign agent for Russia. But in fact, as you just talked about, he was actually working for Turkey and perhaps in some kind of uh, ways that are really questionable. And they don't talk about the fact that when he did speak to the Russian ambassador as part of the incoming administration, he was actually talking to him on behalf of Israel. It wasn't on behalf of Russia or Turkey at that point. He was trying to to persuade the Russian ambassador to not support a resolution criticizing Israeli settlements. And so... There's just a lot of missing gaps in the coverage and it's just a lot of people playing, you know, loose with the facts. And I think that in many ways, even in terms of what the judge said in the courthouse, he was misinformed. (laughs) So anyway, what's your take? Well, I think that this Flynn episode also exposes the frailties and the weaknesses of the anti-Trump coalition. To repeat, you see on CNN an attempt to suggest that Mr. Flynn and Mr. Trump, now that he's threatening to pull U.S. troops out of Syria, which were not invited in the first place by the duly constituted government in Damascus, that Mr. Trump is selling out to Russia, which, of course, has been invited by Syria to defend it against the Islamic State and against Israel and other uh, outside forces. And once again, they're trying to stir up hawkish sentiments against Mr. Trump. And given the fact 
that many of us, and I'm, I'm sure the bulk of the Pacific audience, want Mr. Trump out of office sooner rather than later, and yet now we're sort of yoked, at least indirectly, to these uh, megaphones wielded by CNN and MSNBC. Well, I know that it's just a very strange week when, you know, how they vilify these Trump tweets that come at us fast and furious. I think this is a very strange week when I actually have to agree with a Trump tweet <laughs> and see all this other coverage as being very questionable, not fact field and not worthy of being called journalism. Here, here. But that's just where I am. <laughs> Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the author, activist, historian, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Jay, can we get some music? Let's go. Turn that up, turn that up, turn it up. I want everybody to put a fist in the air for all those that we've lost. We got to come together. We got to tell the world like this. Don't let them get away with murder. Pigment is brown. When a 
and press the shooter, he fast. Wash his hands like Pontius Pilate. Then blame us for the people get violent. Kill the weatherman that created that climate. Point over your highness, ready to get a tyrant. Cause you wanna try us, our people are defiant. Bringing up the doors when I turn on the hydrant. Generation David ain't afraid of Goliath. We got the power, we got the heart, ain't none of us cowards. All this pain for the change of balance. Fall for the moment, we made for the hour. Made for the hour. What you gonna do when your cover gets blown? Whole world see us all suffering and hope to complete. I'm a sin and start spinning with soul. Hands in the air for those that are gone. Put your hands in the air for those people that we've lost. That's why we're here today. I want everybody to sing it with me more. Say, don't let them get away with murder. 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 My name is Syriac Show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. The shaky case that Russia manipulated social media to tip the 2016 election is the title of an article my next guest recently published on the investigative journalism website Consortium News. Gareth Porter is an independent investigative journalist and historian writing on U.S. national security policy. His latest book, Manufactured Crisis, The Untold Story of the Iran Nuclear Scare, was published in February of 2014. Welcome to On the Ground, Gareth. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Esther. Well, your October 2018 article debunked a widely circulated 10,000-word article in the New York Times by Scott Shane and Mark Mazzetti that concluded, quote, What we now know with certainty the Russians carried out a landmark intervention that will be examined for decades to come, end quote. But this story is still being cited by some as a central piece of the alleged evidence of Russian interference or a Russian attack on the 2016 election. This week, two new reports were published by the Senate doubling down on the same conclusions. So bullet point for us why this highly cited New York Times article was, as you labeled it, a gross betrayal of journalistic responsibility. The, the question is, did the Russians actually do something that changed the outcome of our election? The answer is clearly no. This was an effort that was so small in comparison with the overall output on social media that it's ridiculous to suggest that this had an impact on the outcome of the U.S. election. And the key point that I make in my piece that tries to put this in perspective is that the authors of that New York Times piece claimed that the, or or asserted, that the Internet uh, Research Agency, which is the Russian entity that carried out this operation, Uh, reached 126 million Americans, and that this was not that much short of how many people voted in the U.S. election. Well, that's very uh, profoundly misleading, because what they're talking about is 80,000 Facebook posts that were put out by this Internet Research Agency, and those 80,000 Facebook posts have to be put in the context of the total number of Facebook posts that were on the news feeds of American Facebook users. That number, which the New York Times failed to inform their readers of, was 33 trillion, 33 trillion Facebook posts, which Mm -hmm. reached American Facebook users. Now, that is more than the number 
of Facebook users who received the 80,000 Facebook posts, but it's not that much more uh, because the total number of Facebook users was perhaps 200, uh, 200 million. 200 million Facebook users in the United States as opposed okay. to 126 million uh, people who were supposedly reached by the 80,000 Facebook posts. Uh, okay. 33 trillion Facebook posts versus 80,000 Facebook posts is the, is the relevant comparison here. Wow. 80,000 posts compared to 33 trillion posts. And we have to assume somewhere in that 33 trillion is the much larger budget spent by presidential campaigns to influence voters. So what would be the next bullet point? Well, you know, I think that it's important to understand that 126 million figure is a theoretical figure that was calculated by them based on a number of assumptions uh, in terms of how many people could have reached, could have reached, at least uh, could have been reached with at least one Facebook post. Now, this does not mean that 126 million people were reading multiple Facebook posts uh, every day or over a period of two years. It means that over a period of two years, this many people could have gotten at least one Facebook post from the IRA, from the Internet Research Agency. Uh, you know, in other words, they're saying that that's the number of people who somehow or other got something at some point over two years. So it really is quite meaningless. I think that's the key point that I would make about this uh, figure of 80,000 posts and, and the total number who supposedly were reached by it. It's, okay, it's really yeah. not a it's not an accurate measure of people who are influenced by the Internet Research Agency's 80,000 posts. Right. OK, so I'm a Facebook user and a lot of times I don't even see the things in my news feed. I mean, well, exactly. as a user, it took me a long time to even understand that that's weird to, <laughs> to, you know, I would go to my page and I wouldn't even see the news feed. And it took me a while to say, OK, this is where you see the post from other people. <laughs> so that, that's so, right. And, and, I, and most people don't read very many of the Facebook uh, posts that they get. Uh, only 10% supposedly, according to Facebook, of the posts in the news feed that the users get are actually seen. Most of them are just not seen at all. And how many of the ones that they see are actually read? Well, maybe they read the headline and possibly the first paragraph or first sentence, but they don't read the whole thing. So that's the further reality that is simply not reflected at all in this, uh, I would call it a ridiculous uh, analysis by the New York Times. So I just spoke to Gerald Horn about the reports this week, just in terms of how the African-American community and uh, our long struggles around social justice have been kind of dragged into this, <laughs> this storyline. And so as far as you have been able to determine, do the new reports published this week make the same errors? I think absolutely they do. Yes, they do not give you any sense of perspective about what the real relative influence of what the Internet Research Agency posted through Instagram, through Twitter, and through uh, Facebook actually was, what the actual influence was. And, you know, the basic point that I want to make before we come back to 
specific impact on the black activists and black community is concerned is that the IRA was trying to get through Twitter and Facebook posts and so forth, was trying to get people to come out to various events that they tried to get sponsored. For example, they tried to get in various uh, towns uh, around the country, such as Pittsburgh, they tried to get people to come to a rally for Trump. And uh, in every case that I've been able to ascertain, uh, people either did not come out at all or they came in such small numbers that it was simply ludicrous. It had no impact whatsoever. In fact, it just showed that this effort uh, was not influential. It, it, was not, it was not having the effect that perhaps they would have desired. And I think that they were probably not very realistic or uh, the people who were doing it understood that it was not going to happen, but that the, the people who were hiring them to do it wanted something to happen, which simply wasn't going to happen. Okay. So, so in the case of uh, you know, their effort to, to get people to rally uh, in the black community, what I've uh, found out from following up on some of these cases is that, in fact, the uh, people who were already Black Lives Matter activists, for example, were very suspicious when they heard about or saw these posts were calling for people to come out to an event. They didn't know who these people were, and so they didn't pay any attention to it, or they simply dismissed it uh, as an interference in what they were doing. So I think that the reality is that, that this was not only marginal, but totally uh, unsuccessful in trying to penetrate or to have any influence within the black community. I mean, yeah, it's true that individual black people undoubtedly responded and said that they liked something that was said, put out by the uh, Internet Research Agency, because it coincided with their own views. Uh, right. You know, the idea that, that uh, police are prone to killing black youth, you know, is, is seen as true, and therefore they endorsed it. But, you know, did they have uh, an influence in changing views? Of course not. It didn't make any difference. As an investigative journalist, um, do you think that these reports, articles, are the product of, I guess, honest reporting or research errors or sloppy reporting or a matter of using certain measures or statistics to fit a predetermined conclusion? Well, I would say it's the latter, obviously. Uh, I think that uh, the New York Times, like the rest of the um, uh, corporate media, uh, were prone to uh, believing uh, everything about the hysterical reaction about the Russian effort, such as it was during the 2016 election uh, and uh, afterwards in 2017. Uh, you know, the reality is that, by the way, that most of the uh, posts were done uh, after the election campaign was over. So, you know, clearly, you know, this effort was not very serious about the campaign itself. It was not an all-out effort uh, to try to influence the campaign. I think it was a rather half-hearted effort. But, but my point is that, yeah, the corporate media, including New York Times, were already on board with the fundamental notion that the Russians are a threat and we've got to push back and we should support all these organizations that are out to try to suppress views that disagree with this uh, point of view. And so therefore, I would call it really journalistic irresponsibility and political 
bias, very serious political bias, that really distorts the coverage of anything that has to do with the, the question of Russian efforts and what should be done about it. So finally, I guess along the same lines, I mean, because I know you write about a number of different issues related to U.S. foreign policy, is U.S. journalism on the subject just kind of veering farther from the fact-based universe? And I wonder if you want to just mention maybe some of the things you're working on now and some of your articles that people can look for uh, coming up. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that big media, the corporate media in this country has been basically part of an effort to create false narratives surrounding virtually every major foreign policy issue, certainly, that has come down the pike over the past few decades. And you mentioned my book, Manufactured Crisis, in the introduction to this interview. And that book is really about the manufacture of a false narrative about the Iranian nuclear program. The insistence by repeated American administrations going all the way back to the Clinton administration in the 1990s that the Iranians were working on or, or trying to get a nuclear weapon. But, you know, if you go to the question of what should be done about the, the, the supposed military threat from Russia, this is another false narrative that has accompanied this hysteria about the Russians or, or actually anticipated it. As soon as the Ukraine crisis exploded in 2014, you had a situation of the news media endorsing a completely fraudulent view of what was going on in Ukraine, that this was a genuine a democratic, a popular democratic movement, which had no foreign involvement, but no involvement by the United States, whereas in fact, the United States was directly involved in supporting and encouraging it. And the Russians, you know, went a little bit berserk over that, uh, you know, not t terribly surprising that they did so. And from that time on, you had a new Cold War with Russia. And that uh, was uh, a whole new set of issues created to support the desires of the military-industrial congressional complex for new weapon systems, for a new policy that would go out to supposedly uh, counter the threat, the new threat from the Russians. And I think that's really uh, at the heart of this whole crisis over the Russian intervention in 2016 and supposedly continuing since then because wow. it serves the purposes of the military-industrial congressional complex. And there you have it, the real story behind the fake story of Russia social media influence over the 2016 presidential election. My guest has been Gareth Porter, investigative journalist. Thank you for joining me today, Gareth. Thank you very much. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us. I just want to start by saying that if we had a moment of silence for everyone the U.S. has killed, we would never speak again in our entire lives. Think about that. This is not just about Jacqueline. This is about the hundreds of thousands of people who have died at the border. And it is not U.S. generosity that allows them to come. 
In fact, it's U.S. militarism, intervention, and imperialism as the reasons why they came in the first place. So when we hear individuals from the DHS or CBP talking about how generous the United States is because of how many asylum seekers they let in, know that this is not true. Know that they are responsible for the murder of people on the border. They are responsible for these people's deaths in their home countries. So when we think about the violence that this country has created, we have to uplift the root causes of forced migration. And all of us in this crowd know this, but apparently people in the U.S. government don't. And I don't know how many times we have to get this across. No one chooses to leave their home simply because the United States has flashy buildings or they have roads with pavements. They leave their home because they have no choice. And it's really important to keep uplifting this message time and time again. And later on in the program, we're going to be reading the names of people who have died at the border or at the hands of border patrol within the U.S. Many of these individuals are unidentified or unnamed. And this is part of the violence that we don't even know who they are. That their lives are disposable because the United States has decided that they are. But we're here to uplift all of those lives. And whether or not we know who they are, we know they died as a result of U.S. state violence. So we will continue to come here. We will continue to put the focus and spotlight on U.S. state violence domestically and abroad for as long as it takes. So there's justice for Jacqueline and every other individual who has to come to the United States because of the violence we're causing abroad. Thank you. Woo! Woo! It's really important that in the media we be really careful of not perpetuating narratives that are not true because what they're trying to do is blame it on the family. To me, I'm absolutely appalled by the response of our institutions. There's a level of impunity and a lack of giving up about people's lives and children's lives that's not okay. To me, to hear what CBT has been saying, it's not our fault. The father signed this letter. That is absolutely the, it's literally the core of inhumanity. Where is there any kind of consciousness in these people? Yes. I'm standing here, I am seeing some of these guards work up here. Yes. Their jobs are responsible for the murder of a child like Jacqueline. Shame. Okay? Absolutely not. And that's why it is so important for all of us to continue to show up, to hold these institutions accountable. People woke up this morning, came here, not inconvenient. But there is a little girl who just turned seven, who is dead. And you're telling me that she died on the watch of an institution that is literally being paid in the billions. They had water. They had medical folks there. You know the only reason she's dead? Because they didn't see Jacqueline as human. Yes. Yes.
and Maha Halal and Darakshan Raja speaking at the Justice for Jacqueline rally will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included If There's Anybody Out There by Hugh Masakila and Don't Let Them Get Away with Murder by Jaziri X. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on our website on thegroundshow.org you can also write us at the site we're on Facebook Twitter and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW on the ground we're on Patreon and th- special thanks to our subscribers and supporters on Patreon I'm Esther Averam I'll be at the Busy Bee Art and Gift Show today December 21st and 22nd at 1510 9th Street in Northwest DC and at the Bread for the City Holiday Market market on georgia avenue in northwest dc on december 23rd until next time keep raising your voice happy holidays peace